Welcome to episode 380 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a grand conversation with novelist, essayist, short story author, and uh, professor at Dartmouth University. This gentleman has been published in the New Yorker magazine, the Atlantic Monthly, the Paris Review, among other excellent periodicals, and has a very new work just published in 2019 by Little Brown, titled Maggie Brown and Others. Peter Orner is on the program. And uh, we have, a, uh, again, a, a grand conversation talking about his background, his influences, his process, um, some interesting an- anecdotes. I think you'll enjoy it. Great conversation today with Peter Orner. We also have an EW essay titled The Caves, a brand new Uncle Cesare essay written by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled Squirrel Tale, an EW poem called Isabella. And, of course, as is always the case, all of this will be imbued and infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 380 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Porque más que no ni eres mambo, chaña. 
Caves, hope and love to keep us from being blown away into an abyss of nothingness. Though my Buddhist friends remind me that hope can embody an unhealthy expectation, what about centered, calm courage? Humility is deep. Can a man like me truly fathom such a threat to my ego? We look in high places for people to model our way of life, as if the perceived stature we process in our weirdly wired nerve endings is a clear and unabashed indicator. Our Western culture of adolescent-styled competitiveness feeds this sort of preoccupation with social influence, material wealth, and physical dominance. I suppose in many ways this helped us get out of the caves, so to speak. But is that the phase of our human evolution, the one we would like to accept as our developmental peak? Being in the moment, hearing the birds sing, coo, and tweet, having a genuine philosophical conversation with someone you just met, thinking of lovers, their touch and their breath, honestly processing the feelings and logic that drive injustice and hate, not taking the bait, kissing it up to fate, perpetually hiding yourself or running away. Characters of fact and fiction overlap and intertwine during this adventure. As the thieves in the daylight are overtaken by the dreamers in the late night sublime, bending the arc of this country more so toward an earnest sense of justice and filling the soul of each individual with the substance inclined as a natural, pure design that might last us forever. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping staring I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds 
sailing on summer breeze And skipping over the ocean like a stone the northeast winds sailing on summer breeze and skipping over the ocean like a stone everybody's talking at me can't hear a word they're saying only the echoes of my mind I won't let you leave my love behind No, I won't let you Hello, Peter Orner. Is that you? Yes. Hi. Hi, Lawrence. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Oh, I uh, appreciate it. And thank you for the uh, patience with me today. I just uh, had a crazy day, but I'm all good. I hear you. I am having one too. Uh, let, let's uh, give some of the folks a little background before we get started with our conversation. Uh, Peter Orner is a writer and professor at Dartmouth University. She, he's a highly acclaimed novelist, essayist, and short story author. He has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic Monthly, Paris Review, to name but a few. His most recent work is a book of short stories titled Maggie Brown and Others, published in 2019 by Little Brown. And I'd like to share a couple of reviews uh, from Oprah Magazine. Orner brings grace and vigor to the short story form in a preeminent collection, earning a place alongside Carver and Monroe as he ranges across a broad emotional register. And uh, then we can go to something from the New York Times book review, Gregory Cowles. In this collection of 44 compressed stories and one novella about blue-collar men and women and lives that didn't quite pan out, Orner maintains his reputation as a master of the form. It's a pleasure to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tour. So how's the summer going? Not bad, not bad. Uh, I apologize for the noise in the background. They seem to be doing construction every time I come to my office. There's something <laughs> new going on. So anyway, yeah. I shut the window, so now I'm sweating in the heat. But aside from that, I'm all good. Yeah, I hear you. It's, it is a hot one here, too. I'm not too far away from you in uh, the endless mountains of Pennsylvania. You're up there in Hanover, New Hampshire. Yes, yes. And... Uh, Let's get started by sharing with the folks a little bit of uh, your background, your journey, so to speak. Sure. Uh, oh, where, you want me to 
which you want me to begin? Yeah, yeah. I've, it's your it's your journey. So where, wherever you'd like to start from. <laughs> my, and then... journey. I, my journey uh, today, I came from White River Junction, across the river uh, in Vermont, where I have a studio. I, I like to keep my um, my teaching life very separate from my uh, what I call my working life. <laughs> And so I, I have a, a tiny little studio in a uh, in an old hotel called the Coolidge Hotel, which uh, kind of like an old railroad hotel, and uh, it's a little bit like out of The Shining. These huge, wide hallways. You wonder why they built them so wide. Like, what were they, you know, running trains through them or something? But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's my that's my journey today up a hill, and. Uh, into uh into new hampshire uh and uh yeah you know it's hard for me to say i i i sort of you know i've always um as long as i can remember i've been making up stories and and uh you know i I feel very lucky to be able to do it sort of for a living you know um and uh you know i think my first story i i remember in like it was like sixth grade I, they asked us to write about an object in the room and i was i panicked i couldn't think of anything i couldn't think of anything in the entire room to say anything about and i think i was and i i think i felt the same way this morning <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's it, i feel like my life is it's a journey of panic basically uh, ever since that moment and i chose to write about an electric socket and uh, wow, piece, but anyway, yeah, it must have been compelling. <laughs> right now, I'll dig that up. I I, uh, I understand. You know, I've been reflecting on on the sort of the idea of panic and fear myself. You know, is is that a way that anyone should be driven to do things? You know, because I think myself included, when I came up, often that was the way that people got you, got you motivated. You know whether it be on purpose or just because it's the culture that you're raised in. It doesn't seem like a healthy way to go, but I guess it's effective. <laughs> no, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, you know, I, I, but it's, it's, it can be thrilling. I, I, think, I think of something uh, Joseph Brodsky once wrote or said, where he said, like, a, he says a pilot can, you know, after landing the plane 200 times, can kind of assure themselves that, you know that they're going to land the plane most instances, right? And I think in, I think what I do, I, there's no assurance of that, <laughs> you know, none. And that's actually part of the thrill. It's like you don't know how that landing's going to be. Like it's not you don't just you don't go on autopilot in this. And so I find that maybe the fear and anxiety can can make for good work. Although you're right, it doesn't make for necessarily a very settled life. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, sometimes it goes with the old cliche or what have you about artists. You know, they're troubled and they're difficult to be around, but, man, they could really come up with some good stuff. (laughs) We are difficult to be around, that's for sure. And is it worth it for those people who are around us? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. Uh, Thankfully, they see things in us that are good that we don't, (laughs) you know. Sometimes, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, um your influences, you know, when when you came up to it, did you come up? Uh, would you say you were middle class, or were you uh, working class more so, blue collar or white collar? Do you, how how was that experience? Interesting question. Uh, 
I come from a family that has gone up and down in the world, let's say. Uh, my, my mother grew up in uh, working class Fall River, Massachusetts, and her father was a, was a furniture store owner and salesman. And I write a lot about him while Kaplan comes up in this book. And he's actually in, I think, every book uh, that I've written. He's always in, he always makes an appearance. He died when I was 59. And when, even when I, he died when he was 59. And uh, I think I, I think I, I, because I never got to know him, I think much of what I do is trying to get to know that guy, uh, what it was like to be a mostly broke furniture store salesman in Fall River in the 60s and 70s because they, they put a highway through his furniture store, so they took it away at eminent domain. Mm. Anyway, um, myself, I grew up in Chicago. Um, my dad was a lawyer. You know, uh, Sometimes he was more successful than other times. But when my parents split up, um, you, know, I, it, it, you know, my mom was a single mom uh, teaching school uh, as a substitute teacher, and you know, I I think I I felt I think we all felt we'd come down a little bit. You know, we moved out of our house and into a another part of town, and you know, it's very different. So you know, I think I've seen things from different sides. Although I would say I've you know I have maybe a solidly middle class upbringing. Let's say. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that insight. And and your influences, literary influences. I, I've been thinking about this because uh, I appreciated your, your communication earlier. Uh, I feel like I feel like I'm constantly open to being re-influenced. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I have certain core writers and artists, even artists, visual artists that I return to, photographers that I return to again and again. Um, people like. Um, Italo Calvino, mm-hmm. Giacometti, the sculptor um, and painter, uh, uh, the photography of um, Wright Morris, um, as well as the novels of Wright Morris. He was a great uh, Nebraskan uh, uh, novelist who also um, was equally great as a, as a photographer. Um, very interesting guy. He wrote about 40 books um, and has been completely forgotten. But Wright Morris, although I do my best to sort of remind people of him, um, as well as there's a few other Morris aficionados out there who do their best too. But he, he's been a great influence on me because his his work, I think, was each book, he, he was just trying something new always. And I, I, I don't know if it had to do with the fact that he was also a photographer that influenced um, his experimentation. I don't know. But he's a big influence on me. And his but first I, his first name I'm not catching. Oh, it's a uh, Wright Morris. I'm actually moving locations. That, that sounds yeah. better, actually. Yeah. So yeah. How, how would you spell his first name? Uh, Wright. R. Uh, I'm sorry. W R I G H T. Okay. Morris. Good. I yeah, want right. I want people to be clear on that, so they yeah. can look him up. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Uh, I, I did a piece on him for the New York Times uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, I was very pleased that they were interested because. You know, while he'd been a sort of big name in his time, um, he he'd really been largely forgotten. So, um, if anybody's interested, they can look that up. I think it's a called "In Praise of Wright Morris," something along those lines. In Praise of Wright Morris, and and uh, you mentioned uh, writers and photographers and sculptures. How about I'm I'm curious, music? Do you find any inspiration there? Uh, sure, uh, a lot. 
Um, I, I, you know, I, lately, I've been listening to a lot of Silver Jews, uh, David Berman, who passed away uh, maybe a year or two ago. Uh, I tend to go in binges, you know. Um, so, yeah, I listen to a lot of um, Towns Van Zant. I like I like storytellers in music. Um, I uh, I actually just listen. I I, I just drove across much of the east, eastern seaboard, and uh, I listened to a, a podcast um, uh, about the Clash, which mm-hmm. was fascinating, mm-hmm. and it, hosted by Chuck D of Public Enemy. It was really an amazing sort of um, look at music from another from from you know a guy who did very different music, but was clearly influenced by by the clash and some of the things they stood for um, fascinating. And that was inspiring. So what I, what I meant to, what I started to say was, is I'm constantly open to being influenced by new things and constantly open to being re-influenced by stuff that, you know, I, I go back and I look at what, what has moved me in the past and I wonder why that is, you know, so I'll go back and reread um, uh, go down Moses by Faulkner. I read that book probably once a year. Moby Dick, things like that. Eudora Welty is a huge influence on me. Um, I, I read Toni Morrison's Sula uh, every couple years just to get that sort of torque in the language, the intensity in the language. And so, you know, I, 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 I tend to revisit the influences as much as I, um, as I look back fondly on them. I always want to kind of say, well, what was it that, you know, that got me? And I wonder if you find different things when you go back to that you didn't find the last time. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, 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 you it's, it's completely new. You know, these books. They become. You know, they don't just sit in your memory as sort of like in an archive of a good time you once had. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're alive. To the lighthouse. You know, I go back and I read that. I'm stunned. Stunned by it. But but not for the same reasons I was stunned the first time. And, you know, I, that has to be the person reading it, right? I mean, the book is the book. Yeah, I think we change. You know, we change. And, and you know, I think that, again, I, I think it's worth studying sort of what it, you know, you have this fond memory of something, a very intense memory of something, but, but it's unspecific, you know? And I feel like when you go back... You can it can reanim- become reanimated, but yes, you're a completely different person. And I tried to capture this once in an essay about re- rereading to the lighthouse and how I was disappointed in myself for not feeling as intense as I once felt. <laughs> um, yeah. What happens? But 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 I but I felt something different. Maybe it was more. Maybe it was I was looking at more uh, more intellectually, which I think is too bad, but sometimes is inevitable. Yeah, so over uh, getting getting too cerebral could be a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, like trying to study study the impact on myself too much, as mm-hmm. opposed to just letting myself go to the work. And, you know, that's a big danger in writing stories. You know, where you intellectualize it too much, you want to make sure people understand it, and you lose sight of the, the organic feeling you're trying to convey. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Well put. Well put. We're talking to author, professor, among other things, Peter Orner. And um, how about your garage? My my associate producer, Dr. Michael Bavis, who, who teaches um, literature and uses your work in his classes, he huh. he asked me to, to, to ask you this. Describe your garage and your book of essays. 
<laughs> uh, well, that's very nice of him. To, to, I'm, I'm honored he's teaching the book. And uh, uh, my garage, which is my former garage when I lived in um, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, um, I, uh, I, I had an office in a former garage. It wasn't functioning as a garage anymore. It had been a, I described this in the book, but it had been a sort of a, Apparently it was a porn studio at one time, and so it had really good lighting, really intense, let's say very intense lighting. You know, it was kind of a makeshift porn studio. Let's say it wasn't a real professional operation, but it had these intense light. I mean, I would sit there and sweat in the lights, you know, down there in the basement. Um, I think it kept the mice away, that the heat of those lights. But anyway, so, and I just filled it with books. I mean, I just, uh, you know, like you and probably many other people listening, you you know, you, you, I, I, um, I, you know, I love books so much. I feel like I just need to keep acquiring them. And I had room in this garage, so I just filled it and filled it and filled it for years. And I would sit down there and just almost agonize about how I would never in two lifetimes or five lifetimes, much less one lifetime, make even a stab in, in reading all the books that were down there, especially since I'm an extraordinarily slow reader. Well, you know, you just, back to Dr. Michael Pavis, that's exactly what he said to me one day we were in his apartment. He, you know, the walls are lined with books, and, and I said, man, this is impressive. He goes, nah, it's depressing. And I said, well, why is it depressing, Michael? He said, because uh, there's no way I could read all these in my lifetime. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> He's got it right. But there's a certain kind of joy in that too, isn't there? You know, that just that that at least you're you'll you'll be kept busy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, well said. I agree with that. You know, you can't say that oh, I have nothing to do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Or you can't. You know. Oh, I don't have any ideas today. Well, you know, look, take a look at all these other people that all these ideas that are largely forgotten. But you know, take a look. I, I think some William Maxwell is another one of my heroes. I had something beautiful to say, a spin on kind of what uh, Michael said and 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 what what we were just talking about. But he he said I forget exactly what it is, but he says something very, you know, where where he, you know, he just he almost revels in the fact that he can't finish that that it will that it's an unfinished job to to read all he wants to read. Yeah, I I, I could totally understand that, um, and I guess. When you're reading is one thing. How about writing? Do you look at it that? Do you look at at your writing in that way as well? Like, um, there's just so much to write about that you don't have enough time to write about it all. I I feel very differently about the two things. I I uh, yeah. I, I don't feel the same way. I I I feel. <laughs> I mean, for me, writing doesn't come easy, and it doesn't—it doesn't come with a—I don't know how to say this—a lot of largesse, let's say. You know, I—it's I, like, you know, squeezing blood out of a stone sometimes, and I—I I, I think I've just sort of come come to grips with that, and you know, my my basic thinking on this is that I, I just, you know, I when I feel like I can't not say something then it's time to say it. Otherwise, I hold off. When you feel you cannot say something, that's the time to say it. Is that, did I get that right? I, 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 I think I had an awkward double negative in there. When I can't not right. say it. 
Yeah, I didn't say it right. When you can't <laughs> not say right. When I, that's the thing. Otherwise, otherwise I'll otherwise I, I'll let it ruminate. You know, I won't. I, I'm I'm a firm believer in and just this for myself. I, you know, everyone's got a different process, but that I don't. Um, I don't force out the words if they don't come naturally. I don't. I don't tend to try and find them. I just wait. When you're when you're uh, choosing, or maybe it's not a choice. When when you embark on writing a, a an essay, a short story, or a novel, how how does is is it a matter of what you have to say, or you're not sure where it's going to start? Uh, is it going to be a, a novella, a novel, a short story, essay, and then you just find out as you go? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I that it, that I try not to have too many preconceptions about it. Um, I mean, I guess I'd say this is mundane, but you know, if it's nonfiction, I generally know. But um, because I'm my, because of my instinct is always to write fiction. Oftentimes I'll start out with something that's true and then I'll start lying about it. And then it <laughs> turns into fiction. <laughs> and uh, how about your, your book of essays? Are we alone here? Uh, you know, I'm excuse, excuse me. Am I alone here? Uh-huh. The, the question that uh, is connected to that, are we alone here? Is that, have you come to understand, are we alone here while exploring uh, that, uh, that, uh, title am i alone here via that book of essays i i i I mean the title comes from something i would say to myself you know or 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 sort of as a rhetorical kind of like am i alone here in thinking this yeah am i here you know um and i got a house full of well it feels like a house full of kids there's two of them so i don't i wish i could i wish i felt more alone Let's put it that way. Uh, how old are How old are they? Uh, I got a ten year old and a three year old, so it's quite a quite a spread. Um, and but I you know I think with this pandemic, certainly it's felt a little bit like we're sort of on our own. It's nice to talk to people. It's nice to talk to you today. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Otherwise, I I generally am, and I I have to say I enjoy it. I enjoy sort of being sealed off a little bit. I mean, it's kind of how I live anyway. But but it's also you know, because I'm not in the classroom, I'm not out in cafes or whatever it is that I'm wandering around. I mean, I, I collect my stories when I'm wandering around. So that has, this has definitely, certainly made me feel alone in a good way, but also in a, in a um, not so good way. Yeah, I totally get that. And I have a bunch of kids too, and uh, I love them dearly. But yeah, I hope I hope school goes back into session. Though I know it's not going to be a good idea, it seems health wise. But man, they're you know I, I have I have oh, I have seven altogether. You have seven kids. Yeah, you know wow. it's a blended family. But right. five or twelve and under, two nice. are in their twenties, so they're out doing their own thing. Wow. But man, today they're all out doing their own thing. The little ones out playing, so it's quiet. But when right. they're all in the house, yeah, it's it, it's. it's <laughs> Yeah, I don't have to explain it to you. you know. well, that sounds exciting and also, you know, also, uh, yeah, most, it sounds tiring, that's for sure. I keep trying to quit drinking, but it's hard, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, what about uh, the most recent published work, Maggie Brown and others? Yeah. What, uh, what to Give us a little insight on, on uh, what, what, that, what, what you're trying to um, share through that work 
Um, it's always hard for me to say. You know, I uh, it's it's got a lot of stories in it and uh, built over many years. You know, built. I rewrite stories sometimes. I don't know, 10, 15, 20, sometimes 30. Oh, excuse me. Uh, 30, 40, even 40 times, let's say. And, uh, and so this book came about because I had a, you know, I had these stories that were just ruminating for years. Uh, in some cases, even in one case, there's a story in the book called um, Ineffectual Tribute to Len, which I started in 1999. Um, I know because I remember the year and, you know, the time I, in my life that I was trying to write it. So it took 20 years, you know, to, to, to get that one. Um, and so that's when I felt that actually when I, when I finished that story and then when I finished the novella, which caps the book at the end, um, which also took many, many years, um, I felt, okay, you know, I mean, I, I sort of, I feel like the time, I put in the time it was ready to go and I couldn't do anything more with those stories. That that's when I thought it was time to put it out in the world. And I guess if I'd say what the book is about, which is always hard for the writer, you know what I mean? I don't know. You know, you guys tell me, but it's about memory and, and, and just, you know, most of my characters are, are characters who for better, or sometimes for worse, um, are, you know, pulled down in various ways, sorry, various ways by their past. Um, and, and, and that influences the way they live currently. And, and, and I, one thing I really make sure to do is have a real wide cross section of people, age, you know, where people are coming from in life, et cetera. And so, you know, so I've got stories set in the current times, stories set in the 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. So, um, but they're often, most of the time, they're dragged down by some things they can't forget. When you say dragged down, what do you, what do you mean? <sighs> I shouldn't say dragged down. That sounds like a drag, doesn't it? Uh, they're they're, they're uh, battered. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that any better? No. Uh, but I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I feel like when I am wandering around looking at people, which is how I find my stories, I, I always sort of wonder, you know, what it is that sort of, what it is they're holding on to? And, and that's what I'm curious about, what, what, people are, what people are holding on to. What kind of uh, keeps them from floating away or from disappearing? Yeah, or even, you know, yeah. I mean, that, that, uh, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I reflect. Or, or, you know, or, in fact, in some cases, makes them float away, or makes them float away metaphorically. Let's say. You know, makes me think of a Kafka story, The Bucket Rider, where he actually does float away. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love Kafka. Yeah. Uh, um, so these these are all fictional characters, but they, right, uh, maybe based on some real people, Uh but they seem pretty real to you based on the way you're referring to them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I think that comes from just, um, the spending so much time with them that they, you know, that I think that's the, I, I mean, I think you put your finger 
on the real test of fiction if they become real i mean they better be real to me um and and i can only hope they're real to you and and if that's not the case and i have to say in too much fiction that i read i don't feel that way um but that's what i'm after i i want these people i don't care any about really anything else whether other than whether they are real to you Wonderfully put. Peter Orner on Troubadours and Rock on Tour. So we're just about done with our conversation. Um, I, I just, I'm wondering what's next. What are, you, what are you doing with the rest of your summer? What are you doing in the fall? You guys know what you're doing up at the university yet? Maybe not. I'm not sure. So what's next? <laughs> what's next is, is the next hour. You know what I mean? Uh, I, uh, I don't ever, um, I, I try not to plan too far ahead. You know what I mean? I, uh, so I, I'm, I'm in my office or my little studio every day trying to bang out some sentences. Mostly I'm reading though. And, uh, in this time I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, what, what's next for us all. You know what I mean? And I don't know. I, I feel we're in this weird holding pattern. Don't you think? Yes. You know, it's almost like for, it's almost feels presumptuous to be like, oh, well I have this and this and this on my agenda. I, uh, my agenda is pretty clear at the moment while I think about what's happening to us. I and I also, I also have a, you know, I'm jinxed by talking too much about stuff in progress. Cause I feel like it doesn't, I can't talk about something that doesn't exist, but in this case, I feel like doubly so because of the situation we're in. Yeah. It's, it's making our weirdness even that we all have even weirder. I think. Yeah. 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 Isn't it? I mean, just I don't know. I, I mean, again, it's not. Yeah, it sounds weird to. It, it, it's hard to articulate, which I think is okay. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, sir. Oh yeah, likewise, Lawrence. Thank you very much. You made my. You made my. You made my lonely day. Oh, I'm honored. <laughs> I'm honored, Peter Orner. I uh, look forward to more works, and I I'm gonna. Purchase right after we get off of uh, what are, this call, Maggie Brown and others. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to read it. Uh, I think today, I, I'm not sure if this is, sometime this, this week is the pub date of the paperback. So the paperback is now out. It's got a nice new cover on it. And uh, so, so pick up a new paperback. Excellent. We got the plug-in. Beautiful. <laughs> it's got a picture of a rat. It looks like summer. It looks like very summery. Even though I kind of write, you know, I don't write beach books. I, I have some stupid joke where I say, like, it's a beach book, you know, for people who go to the library in June. Um, but uh, but they somehow the little brown thought it was a beach read. So they put a raft on it, you know, with like legs dangling down, stuff like that. I love it. I yeah. love it. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Lawrence. I appreciate it. And I good luck with those kids and good luck with everything. You too, sir. You too. Peter. Right. Thank All you. Right. See you, Lawrence. Bye-bye. Bye. Today and tomorrow And yesterday too The flowers are dying Like all things do Follow me close 
I'm going to Berlin, Ali. I lose my mind if you don't come with me. I fuss with my hair and I fight blood feuds. I contain multitudes. Got a telltale heart like Mr. Poe. Got skeletons in the walls of people you know. I'll drink to the truth and the things we said. I'll drink to the man that shares your bed. I paint landscapes and I paint nudes. I contain multitudes. A red Cadillac and a black mustache. Rings on my fingers that sparkle and flash. Tell me what's next. What shall we do? Half my soul, baby, belongs to you. Oh well, I can't frolic with all the young dudes. I contain a multitudes. I'm just like Aunt Frank. Like Indiana Jones and them British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. I go right where all things lost are made good again. I sing the songs of experience, like William Blake. I've no apologies to make. Everything's flowing all at the same time. I live on a boulevard of crime. I drive fast cars and I eat fast foods. I contain multitudes. Pink pedal pushers, red blue jeans. All the pretty maids and all the old queens, all the old queens from all my past lives. I carry four pistols and two large knives. I'm a man of contradictions. I'm a man of many moods. I contain multitudes. You greedy old wolf! I'll show you my heart, but not all of it. All of the hateful parts. I sell you down the river. I put a price on your head. What more can I tell you? I sleep with life and death in the same bed. Get lost, madam. Get up off my knee. Keep your mouth away from me. I'll keep the path open, the path in my mind. I see to it that there's no love left behind. I play Beethoven sonatas, Chopin's preludes. I contain 
multitudes Squirrel Tale I have always distrusted squirrels. Walking in the park, with an eye out for chipmunks. Why don't I ever see chipmunks? I'll spy a squirrel, or two, or three, or more. There are so many squirrels in the world. And I think, what's to keep that squirrel from leaping up and plunging his sharp little teeth into my throat? There are, admittedly, few reports of squirrel attacks, and yet I'm wary, always looking over my shoulder as I stroll the park, like a mobster-turned-canary in the witness protection program, wondering when the whacking will come. Whence comes my aversion to squirrels? I was a big Bullwinkle fan growing up, and I held no animus toward Rocky, his plucky and loyal companion in pun-filled adventures. I always liked Rocky. I should have transferred my affection from animated squirrel sidekick to the flesh and fur animals scampering about the streets and yards and back alleys of my depressed former coal town. Perhaps it was coming across the tail of a squirrel in a junk drawer when I was an impressionable youth. There, amid bent saint's medals and broken pen knives and cloudy magnifying glasses, and tiny screws to who knows what, was the mummified tail of a squirrel. The discovery was repulsive and shocking, if not quite as revelatory as finding the bright yellow paperback of Portnoy's complaint in my brother's dresser drawer. I was an inveterate drawer trawler. Why was the tail in the drawer? What happened to the squirrel who once gaily sported the tail? It's an unsolved minor mystery. I never asked my brothers about it, but I would occasionally open the drawer, gaze upon the dismembered tail with fascination and disgust, and quickly close it. Somewhere out there was a tailless squirrel, or, more likely, the ghost of a tailless squirrel. And while it wasn't quite the curse of the monkey's paw, the vision of that appendage remained with me for decades. Would the squirrel's ancestors seek revenge upon the family who mutilated one of their own? My answer came many years later, when I was the victim of a squirrel home invasion. I opened my door one day to the aftermath. Magazines and newspapers that I had planned eventually to recycle when they could no longer be ignored were scattered across the floor. The kitchen cabinet was open, and the plastic top of a half-eaten can of blue diamond smokehouse almonds was torn apart. Almonds everywhere. The lid of a jar of peanut butter had deep scratches. The squirrel failed in his attempt to tear it off in a peanut butter-induced frenzy. Peanut butter, a pest control man later informed me, is squirrel crack, and I pictured a glassy-eyed addict slumped near an empty jar of jiff, his weeping girlfriend imploring him to get help. I surveyed the damage, hoping he wasn't hiding, waiting for the chance to spring out at me. I entered the bedroom, and there, on my desk, I saw a single almond. 
Now, I was picking up almonds for weeks afterwards, but I took this lone almond as a sign, an affront, really. It was a big F.U. from the squirrel. There he was, angry from his failure to open the peanut butter jar, his cheeks stuffed with my smokehouse almonds, making his way to my desk with an almond clutched in his tiny paw, a gleam in his black eyes. Here you go, loser. Thanks for the snacks. For days I would clap when I entered the apartment to startle the creature in case he returned and was deep into a box of noodle-roni. My landlord inspected the place but couldn't determine how he got in. We could hear him scampering about somewhere in the roof above me, however, and he called a squirrel catcher. The professional put traps with peanut butter out, hoping to snare him and drop him off into the woods. Or so he said. Good luck finding fancy almonds in the forest, I thought with satisfaction. The friendly, non-exterminating exterminator caught the culprit, sealed up a hole in the roof, and told me to listen for the sounds of a trapped squirrel, perhaps a confederate left behind. Time passed, and thankfully, no sounds. The squirrel must have worked alone. I didn't eat almonds for years.
Isabella. Dog licks his chops as the little boy stops poking him in his eyes. I can barely remember my Siberian husky German shepherd, Isabella. Perhaps I was stoned and lost during that whole time. Perhaps I am still with this erudite Chihuahua Marquez at my feet.
And there you have it, episode 380 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. Writer Peter Orner, our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Tre Los Chapas, Harry Nilsson, Bob Dylan, The Beach Boys, Nina Simone, and of course, Brentford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care.